Hello and welcome to the Edition Podcast with me, Charlotte Henry. In recent weeks, I've dedicated a fair amount of time into covering goings-on at the BBC, namely its transition to a single news channel for both the UK and the rest of the world. I'm therefore delighted that today I'm joined by someone who is at the heart of the BBC's news operation, both in the UK and abroad, uh, for many years, Jamie Angus. Jamie edited the flagship Today and World at One programmes on Radio 4 before moving to the World Service Group, where he rose to be its director. Jamie, there's so much to discuss, so thank you for joining me today. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you for having me. No, I'm absolutely thrilled to have you, because as I say, there's a lot. Um, I don't know if... I mean, I guess we should start with the most recent things. Just a quick take on uh, the Gary Lineker, if you don't mind. I know you've posted on it. I think you've got a slightly different take to some people. As now a BBC outsider looking in, did you? How, what was your thoughts on how that played out, that kind of rather bizarre weekend? Well, I think most... Uh, I feel like most everything's been said about this. Yes. But I suppose my only feeling was that um, for staff in BBC News who are prohibited from ever saying what they think about anything... And actually, from and further than that, they're actually prohibited from doing things that they feel really strongly about, like mm. attending gay pride marches or posting about Black Lives Matter or other issues which they might feel was sort of central to their own identity. I think a lot of staff in news actually were broadly supportive of attempts to make Gary Lineker stop posting, you know, on social media about what he thought about current issues because it is very hard to hold the staff in news to this incredibly high standard, which I think is right. I think it's right that, you know, staff in news are held to that standard. While somebody who is extremely prominent and extremely closely associated with the BBC and its values basically drives a coach and horses through those same guidelines. Now, I think it's more complicated than that, obviously, because the guidelines by Tim Davies' own admission, the guidelines aren't really clear as to how they affect non-staff members, so freelance staff members outside of news. But mm. overall, I think it's been very difficult for staff in news to adhere so carefully to the guidelines, frankly, under the threat of disciplinary action if they breach them. But at the same time, they open their social media app and they see one of the BBC's best known stars having their say about, um, you know, very, very sensitive and controversial current issues. So I, I, and I, and I think since I said that a week or two ago, I've had messages from inside the BBC news that suggest that that is quite a widely held view. So there you go. that's interesting because the perception uh, was that kind of staff were quite pleased. Someone was pushing back sort of, particularly in the sport, you know, quite frustrated that they couldn't say things. There was, it was perceived, like, to be more accurate, there was a lot of support uh, for Gary Lineker. Obviously, the entire sports staff that weekend basically walked out. It, you know, the sports coverage collapsed, as I've covered elsewhere. So it's good to have that kind of alternative perspective. Well, I, I think you just, yeah, it's interesting because, of course, privately, it's entirely possible that some staff in news share Gary Lineker's views about the government's asylum proposals, just as many of them do not. But I suspect that a lot of them who did share his views privately also think that he ought to stick to the BBC's social media guidelines. So this isn't really a question about what do you think about the government's policy on immigration? It's a question about how does the BBC uphold its commitment to impartiality, including in the very tricky area of freelance presenters who of which don't there are many. work directly for the news services, right? Yeah. 
Oh, no, I, as I say, I'm really grateful for the slightly alternative view on it because there was a narrative and it, it's good to kind of try and puncture that a bit on something that really, frankly, took up far more airtime than I thought it needed to. Um, so let's move on to perhaps more fundamental things going on at the BBC, because as I said, you were at the World Service, which is the international arm, and that covers some of the commercial elements of the BBC as well. So let's kind of go back to the beginning and talk about what's going on now, which is this news channel merger for those people who haven't been following it and i hope you have been because i've written about it in the newsletter um the new bbc news channel a few weeks ago became one there used to be an international one that was the kind of thing you'd see in a hotel room when you were abroad and so on with different presenters there was a domestic news channel that we got here in the uk and the feeds have now been combined and the perception is it's basically a global facing channel it's all about the world service now uh, and that's what's you know, a bunch of presenters who we knew very well domestically have gone. A lot of staff behind the camera who we've never heard of have gone. And we're now at a submerged news channel. What was your take on that as a concept, first of all, and then how it's been implemented? Well, I think it's become inevitable because of the increasing, ever-increasing funding pressures in news that running two full-fat continuous news channels, as, as I sometimes call them, was not really sustainable. And I think moving to the single channel option is partly, let's be completely honest, it is a cost-saving exercise, but it's also about the shifting ways that people consume breaking news. So a lot of the audience, particularly in the UK, are consuming more and more breaking news on digital platforms first. And also the, the way technology is changing means that there are different ways of turning that breaking news on digital platforms into a kind of continuous news service. So I think that what's being suggested is this kind of sensible and proportionate response to the funding pressures, but it also recognises that the reach of BBC World News, which reaches 100 million people a month, it's the BBC's most watched channel by far. That's just domestically. vast and needs, and in globally. So that's the globally, BBC okay. World News Channel globally. I was going to say, that's like... 100 million people a month. And, twice and the... the UK News Channel, the equivalent figures of the UK News Channel are obviously proportionally much smaller yes. because the audience size is, you know, more limited. Now, that doesn't mean that the, the UK News Channel hasn't fulfilled a really important purpose over the years. It absolutely has. And I think that the new channels that's being proposed will be able to respond to UK breaking news and it will be able to have as I understand it two separate streams one that goes to the global audience and one that goes to the UK audience where there is news that is only of interest to the UK audience and when we were sort of talking about this in the conceptual phase before I left it was very much you know floods in Yorkshire uh, or you know, a high profile obituary that is of, you know, um, sort of entertainment figure dies that is of no interest to uh, to the international audience. And, and or, you know, um, a, a parliamentary event, you know, sort of long parliamentary session, maybe perhaps Boris Johnson's evidence to the, to yes. the standards committee the other week, things that you would want to run it all live for a UK audience, but you clearly wouldn't want to do that on an international channel. And I think the advances in technology and the technology of how people put out these channels 
means that this kind of one channel, two stream solution has become technologically possible. There are other clever things that the team have done, like putting the Nikki Campbell phone in show, te- you know, televising what is a radio program. Yeah, that's on Radio that 5 on Live. For a couple of hours for the UK audience. Exactly. So, and they're going to put Newsnight on the UK news channel, the new the UK feed of the news channel. So I think all of those things mean that the actual user experience for UK audiences won't necessarily be that visibly diminished but but it is a very big change in the way that those continuous news channels are put together uh, for me there seems to be two things that i was a bit concerned about it one was the talent that left you know when people like joanna gosling are leaving the bbc that i don't think is a good thing for the bbc um and the other thing was i think there is a risk in this approach and i understand what you're saying about the two feeds and how you know you can cut to a parliamentary session or localized flooding that really does matter to a uk audience and so on but it does seem it does seem to me a diminishing of a service namely for the people that pay it i.e brits that pay the license fee are getting a lesser or certainly less perhaps less relevant service do you think that's a fair criticism I think it is a I think it is a criticism and I think it you know it takes us on possibly into another area to discuss which is to what extent the commercially funded parts of BBC news are becoming more dominant because mm. BBC news is commercialized quite heavily outside the UK particularly the services in English particularly BBC World News as was and bbc.com the news website and it is entirely right that Deborah Turness and her team want to invest more in those commercialised news services outside the UK because the returns that they make support the licence fee and in turn support public service journalism in the UK and in other parts of the world. But I think this is a really good example where, you know, the publicly funded licence fee public service part of BBC News is being progressively cut. And the same is true of the UK news channel as of local news services. You saw Mm. BBC Nations and Region journalists actually out on strike a couple of weeks ago because of cuts to really, really highly valued UK news services that are disproportionately used, for example, as is the what was the UK news channel by older audiences. So Mm. people who are less digitally connected, if you like. And so you end up with having to strike a balance and I know that the current management team will be thinking about this all the time to strike a balance between the need to sustain the BBC's public service mission with public service money that is enforced through the license fee but to be taken from the UK public but at the same time to balance that with the expansion of commercially funded services outside the UK uh, particularly in North America. Yeah. Um, For listeners who are not in the UK who maybe don't quite understand the funding model of the BBC, uh, those of us in the UK, if you want to watch any live television, and that includes if you turn on the BBC iPlayer streaming service and want to watch it live, you get a message. You have to pay what is called the licence fee. I can't quite remember how much it is. It's a hundred and something pounds a year. I personally think it's one of the best value things I pay for uh, of all the streaming services and media services I pay for because it covers basically the entirety of the BBC for what I think is not a particularly significant amount of money. But it is absolutely enforced and it can be enforced by law. Um, So it's quite a significant thing. And that's why I ask, you know, are the people who are actually paying this enforced by law getting value for money? And I think they're going to have to be very wary of that, the BBC, aren't they? That suddenly we don't see that the service that we kind of assume is the highest calibre news service in the UK almost. And, the you know, we know there's loads of data that shows us that in major world and news events, 
people turn on the BBC. It's the first place people go once when they gather something is happening in the world. Look at the figures for when the Queen died, for instance. Um, and so I think that that is an important thing. But you raised another good point, which is this digitalization of the BBC, which we know is a really high priority for everyone leading the organisation at the moment. Uh, and this, the merging of the news channel, as I understand, it, has in part been justified by, you know, going, well, if you want to see about flooding in Yorkshire or what's going on in your local area, we can find you a spot for that on the website. Because the digitization is increasingly important, isn't it, to the where the BBC plans to go going forward? That's absolutely right. And I think, again, it, it's relevant to what the BBC is trying to do internationally. Um, the North American news market is the most commercially viable news market on the planet. And the BBC is rightly expanding its provision for North American audiences, including coverage of their own country, mm. and investing in scores of new digital journalism jobs in North America. And it, that is almost unequivocally a good thing. It's the right thing to do for the BBC. The only way in which it's conceivably not a good thing is that it can end up skewing the editorial focus of the digital report, if you like, mm. because the website will tend to choose to highlight stories that uh, that are provided for them, right? And so you are operating now in a world where the BBC World Service, the publicly funded part of the BBC World Service, has announced and completed very significant cuts in recent months, you know, tens of millions of pounds worth of cuts, including a, a very significant reduction in editorial posts in East and West Africa and India, to name but three places, at the same time that the numbers of digital posts in North America are going up very significantly. And one potential downside to that is that you would end up seeing a disproportionate and probably not editorially correct balance of news which skews excessively towards North American digital mm. news at a time when actually the BBC's role in reporting the whole of the globe, kind of funding agnostically, if you like, has never been more important. And I've really started to notice a bit on social media over the last couple of months, that point being picked up by users, which is that there can be a very large amount of content on the BBC News website from North America uh, particularly at weekends and overnights, kind of times when the public service part of the organisation is a bit more at rest. And that can be an appropriate thing. But I think if you look, let, let me just try and give you a hypothetical example. If you are a local services user, you want local news in the, from the BBC in the UK and your local radio station, local providers can no longer have the resources to mount a live blog about flooding in your area, for example, but you turn on the BBC News website and there is a live blog of, say, the Gwyneth Paltrow skiing trial or the Idaho murder case or the Alex Murdoch murder trial, which recently had a live blog running on it. You might ask, why is the BBC providing very extensive coverage of events in North America and not providing very extensive digital coverage of events in my area and I think that's a really important trade-off that the BBC's got to continue to be mindful of which is that as it rightly ramps up the expansion of its commercial services particularly in North America that its commitment to local audiences in the UK and global audiences in non 
commercial markets, you know, in places like Myanmar or India or Iran or actually parts of the Arab world in the region where I'm speaking to you from now, don't become disproportionately degraded because that would really be to undermine the actual purpose of the BBC, what it's there for, what it's there to do and what nobody else will provide. Uh, yeah, and I mean, another example I would use is uh, the extensive coverage of the Donald Trump indictment just a few days ago. And no doubt as that continues, we'll see lots of coverage on the BBC. And now in some way, you know, that is obviously appropriate to some extent. He's a former president of the US. Um, but we maybe don't need multiple stories explaining who Stormy Daniels is, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, funded by mostly license fee players. Um I also want to make a point before I ask you my next question about the quality and importance of BBC uh, local radio. The, per the example I think of is that round of interviews with then Prime Minister Liz Truss, where the local radio presenters absolutely sort of skewered her um, as well as anyone could. And it showed the kind of quality and depth of BBC local radio and the importance of it. I actually I wrote about it because I was kind of taken aback by how sort of impressed and shocked people were that BBC local radio was good. And I think a lot of local listeners will already be able to tell you how important those presenters were to them. Um, let's flip back to the North America, because you mentioned a few times the kind of commercial aspects of the BBC in that region. I wondered if you could break that down a bit more for us. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, as I said in an earlier answer, it's absolutely right that the BBC commercialises its news content and, and often content that it already is making for the paid for by the licence fee outside of the UK. That's a really important way of raising money to support the licence fee, just like selling Top Gear uh, is a really good way of supporting the licence fee by selling the rights to that internationally. And it's in, sanctioned under the charter and encouraged, and it's right that the BBC does it. I guess the question I'm asking is, is how the BBC ensures that it gets the balance right between protecting the reporting of parts of the world which basically have zero commercial value and those are funded either through the license fee or through the government grant to the world service and an increasing investment in com very commercial markets which obviously particularly North America but also could be Australia and New Zealand and parts of parts of Western Europe. The new news channel, of course, plays into this because the overnight service for the single news channel operation is going to come from Singapore and from Washington. And again, I think that's a good thing. I think that's a good idea that the BBC doesn't, in the end, pay people to be up all night in the UK working overnights for an international news channel that it could provide from Washington or from Singapore. You don't think but it again, loses these something? are parts of the world. Sorry, second. You don't, you don't think you slightly lose something if you, I mean, I know CNN does this. If you turn on CNN in the morning, you get presented from CNN in London, and then it eventually cuts to the early morning shows in America. But do you not think uh, we lose something on the BBC if it's not centred from Broadcasting House or Salford? Personally, I think the trade-off is worth making because I think if the core purpose of the continuous news channel is you know, primarily for international audiences, between 11.25 when Newsnight goes off air and 5am when the channel comes back on from Broadcasting House, I think it's probably a good thing that it comes from Washington and from Singapore, as long as there's some provision that if there's a, a, a Grenfell Tower 
event in the middle of the night. That's a really good example of a huge UK story that happened in, in that time frame. That, that there is the ability in extremists to come back to UK centred output. And, and, and that's right. And I'm sure the team will have put plans in place to ensure that that happens. But again, it's a good example of, you know, commercialised news markets offer the opportunity for the BBC to invest in particular geographies and particular regions. And that is almost entirely a good thing. It's just that we keep, need to keep a really careful watching brief as audience members and people who love the BBC that actually non-commercialized markets also get equal coverage and equal billing because of course, best in class coverage of Iran, Myanmar, China, uh, the Arabic speaking world, uh, you know, the, these are things that only the BBC can do at scale and still has the ability to do so. And it's really important that those stories are given appropriate shop window space on the news website and on the new uh, single television channel at a time when the World Service funding is being cut really quite significantly. That's that's really something to keep an eye on, I think. Yeah, you've mentioned cuts a couple of times. And when I've been reporting stories, um, at least one former BBC uh, staffer mentioned cuts as well. I mean, do you have, you can say this now, you're freed of the shackles of your BBC impartiality, but, but do you have criticisms of how, uh, you know, various governments over the years have squeezed the BBC? Do you think, oh, first of all, do you agree, accept that premise? And then do you, th- do you have those criticisms? Well, actually, view, viewed from outside with the benefit of having been out of the organisation for a year, I feel a bit differently about how, how I was when I was in there. And when I was running the World Service, obviously, I was arguing vociferously for investment in the World Service to be maintained and indeed increased. And of course, I still believe that. But looking at the cost of living pressures on people in the UK, it is very hard to see how any government at the moment is going to really argue for a significant real terms increase in the license fee. And I think actually that the BBC's tactics at the moment of, of, you know, just trying to negotiate ongoing real terms increases in the license fee probably isn't going to be the right way forward because I can't see that cost of living pressure easing in the time of the next license fee settlement. And and I'm very interested in how the BBC can retain the universal nature of the service it provides, but also provide some optionality around subscription or additional payment. If the BBC became entirely a subscription model, that would be extremely damaging because subscription-driven organisations chase people who have available income to spend on subscriptions. So the nature of the service it provides becomes commercialised and not at all public service. But I wonder for the next charter renewal where there's a happy medium where a basic licence fee, perhaps that costs less than the licence fee does now, provides access to the key free-to-air services, the BBC News website, the radio services and so on, and a basic watch back again iPlayer. But licensee pairs also have the option of paying a significantly enhanced license fee that gives them access to subscription products, which are essentially more personalised, include things like BritBox, a more highly personalised iPlayer with a deeper archive, 
these kinds of things that would allow people who want to pay for more for the license fee to do so, but also recognise the cost of living pressures on many households in the UK. And I wonder whether that's a more sensible way for the BBC to try and develop the license fee argument into the next uh, charter renewal cycle. Mm. I'm not I'm not quite that makes me a bit uncomfortable actually just a kind of idea that there would be two-tier access to a, what is a, a public service broadcaster I wonder if something like uh, you know PBS and whatever uh, NPR and America often have funding drives don't they and ask people for additional subscriptions that are optional uh, and I wonder if some kind of approach like that might feel more appropriate it's a very, very difficult set of arguments. And I think anything that moves you away from the universal model undermines the distinctiveness of the BBC. But I just feel now have with a bit of distance from it, actually, that um, just simply trying to defend the license fee and an endlessly increasing real terms license fee at all costs while ruling out any additional payments or co-payments option is possibly not going to help in the long term because it just doesn't recognize the very profound way in which people's paying for content has changed over the last decade uh, and like you i'm easy i'm uneasy about anything that undermines universal access to the best of the bbc services so i kind of set myself to thinking a bit about well what could you provide around personalization or a deeper archive content or you know um, access to events and show recordings so that you feel like the bbc is a mutual organization almost like a kind of bbc mutual building society that you can volunteer voluntarily pay additional money into because you believe in it and that seems to me an important revenue stream that the BBC is not currently able to access and I wonder how you could construct it as you say Charlotte rightly so that the fundamental free-to-air access bit of the tier of the BBC wasn't in any way significantly undermined I think that's a good area for people to think about in the coming years. Do you think some politicians want to deliberately want to undermine the BBC? Um, I'm not sure about that, actually. I mean, again, there's a lot of sort of heat and not much light Mm. around this. But in my experience, when you talk to politicians in private, they love the BBC and appreciate what it's for, almost without exception. But they are incredibly frustrated with it in lots of ways and tend to love some bits of it more than others. So interestingly, they very much love their local services. So all politicians really want the BBC to protect their local radio and local digital news and local TV provision, for example. So I think there's a lot of posturing around the BBC, which doesn't actually reflect what people think in private. And I actually think that's why the BBC licence fee has remained the funding model for as long as it has, because so long as the BBC is more popular than the government of the day, which seems to be a fairly immutable law, though possibly not per, not forever, but at the moment it seems to be, you know, if the BBC is more pos- popular than the government of the day, it's all downside for the government to really, really try and have it out with the BBC. And I think the BBC has been able to rely on that for a long time, but it probably shouldn't rely on it forever because as we've seen with recent problems at the BBC you know public opinion can turn quite quickly and I think there is a real risk of you know kind of losing some of the core constituency who really has supported the BBC through thick thick and thin. Yeah I have said I've made it clear in this episode and multiple other episodes and newsletters um, that I'm a very 
strong firm believer in the BBC I think it's a fantastic service I use it extensively I've written about how BBC Radio 5 Live is essentially the soundtrack to my Saturday um and I think it's very important that that it's maintained but I also sometimes feel and maybe this brings us full circle as we end the conversation to the back to the Gary and the Carell that sometimes the BBC is its own worst enemy isn't it Um, it's it's an almost impossible task. I always think of it like sort of carrying a very precious vase across the floor, you know, and I certainly felt like that doing today. It was like yes. you are given the custodianship of an institution that is held in immensely high regard, but because of its central importance in UK cultural and public life, it is a, a slow-moving target that draws fire, Right. So people in any culture war issue or any issue whatsoever, the BBC usually ends up being a player. And and the more toxic the issue, the more the BBC ends up being a player in it, whether it's coverage of Brexit or whether it's um, reporting LGBT and trans uh, rights and language or uh, the row about immigration and Carrie Lineker. You know, the BBC just ends up getting sucked into things that are issues of dispute in the country at large and I think everyone who works there accepts that and you learn to to work with it and, and to live with it and in a way to cherish it because that's why it's important the fact that it matters uh, is you know that's why people work there right um, so I don't really think that's ever going to change to be honest and um, and in a way it shouldn't change because if it did change, the BBC would mean acknowledging that BBC to the UK wasn't that important anymore. And I would regret that. Yeah, I would regret that too. I do worry there is a sense of managed decline at the BBC where talent from across the spectrum, you know, top tier people, people that have been there for decades in important production roles, uh, all have been allowed to walk out the door, whether, you know, I mentioned Joanna Gosling before, but there's, streams of producers of you know huge talent that have been able to leave I think of you know Dino Sophos doing very well with the news agents podcast now who really it kick-started BBC podcasting was allowed to leave as I say there's whole chunks of production that are being uh carved out you know Sam McAllister at Newsnight behind that Prince Andrew interview now being turned into a Netflix film after a very very powerful book there's there's lots of people some that, whose names we will never ever ever know who have been allowed to leave and the, i'm worried there's a sense of managed decline at the bbc uh, am i being unfair i think in part it's good that people leave the bbc and go and do other things and i think historically it's been an he organization says, he says people leaving. often spend their own careers at. well i'm very you know since you asked me i'm um you know, working for uh, an, an Arabic broadcaster in the Gulf. And uh, we talked about a little earlier about the power of radio and, uh, you know, Al Arabiya, my, my employer, where I'm the chief operating officer, have just launched uh, a continuous Arabic language radio service in the region in Saudi Arabia uh, and on shortwave services across the region. And I think that's just one example of how there are things that the BBC did do and has stopped doing that other providers can do. And people who are experts in things at the BBC may want to go elsewhere and work for other people. And I'm finding it really fascinating and happy to be doing that. But I think in your, um, you know, to answer your question more specifically, the the scale of the cost savings in BBC News, which is the area I was most familiar with in recent years, have meant that some of the BBC's 
most senior and in brackets therefore probably most expensive staff members have left and that's inevitable part of how organizations save money and it's not necessarily to the benefit of audiences i mean clearly you need to have room in the organization for uh, new talents to emerge and that's a good thing because there needs to be space for new people to come in with innovative ideas but i personally feel that the scale of the post closures in the bbc and the ones that are yet to come do risk undermining that uh, that best in class service that audiences have the right to expect and and it's an impossible job for the managers inside the bbc trying to sort this because i was one of them and i know just how difficult it is you actually there are people you just feel ought to stay at the bbc because they're of such value to audiences but in the end when you have to make the savings and close posts and close services some of those people are going to leave and that's just inevitable yeah, I, I as well as you might say some of the more expensive and top detail, I was thinking a lot of that hollowing out of the middle, you know, the people that have been there 10, 15 years who can catch issues before they ever make it to air uh, and stop mistakes happening. And, you know, that there's a lot of a lot of experience that have walked out of Broadcasting House in recent weeks and months. Anyway, Jamie, we could keep debate chatting about this for hours, I would imagine, but we're going to have to bring the show to a close so just again you're now at al arabia to quickly uh wrap up where else people can keep up with you or your work yeah thank you well it's it, it's fascinating working for an you know an arabic language news provider which is the you know the leading arabic news provider in the region and particularly in saudi arabia of course where where al arabia is going to be based um uh, it's currently based partly in dubai and partly in in riyadh itself and um you know the new radio service is something we're really excited about because the bbc closed its arabic radio service uh, a month or two ago and is about to or has just closed its persian language radio service actually with, there with was great a lot regret of upset because of the that. funding pressures yeah and and i can't tell you actually from on, you know actually living in the region for a year how well regarded bbc arabic radio was it's particularly by that older generation it is held in immensely high regard and the closure of it is a, is is a really significant loss for the bbc but our feeling was actually there is a significant arabic radio audience out there and expanding radio services even though that's kind of like back to the future is a good thing to do you know as a news organization al arabia is investing heavily in expansion of social media output social media programming in particular and our digital services more widely alongside the two continuous news channels that we run in arabic but i think the 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 new radio service is just a sense of like how important radio is in this region uh, for all kinds of reasons kind of historically and culturally and actually we're very happy to pick up audiences who previously listened to bbc arabic radio and hopefully will now consume our new service well it's been fascinating having you on the show um maybe we'll have to have you back as the new radio services uh, continue to expand if you want to keep up with me, I'm at Charlotte A. Henry on Twitter. Of course, if you're listening to this on Substack, you're presumably already getting the newsletter at theedition.substack.com. If you're not, please head over there. If you want to listen to uh, this podcast in any other podcast service, that you can do that. Again, maybe just look for The Edition or The Edition Charlotte, Charlotte Henry, wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you once again, Jamie, and I'll see you all next week. 